difícil. Does everybody have an outline? Are we good? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, how gracious you are to us. How wonderful, wonderful you are to us every day with the gifts that you provide for our enjoyment in this life to make it sweet and to remind us of your presence and your mercy and your grace and your holiness. And as we study Amos tonight, Father, we want to be blessed in such a way that we move closer to you, not just in our, our thinking, but, but in all of our actions. We want to be drawn lock, stock, and barrel, everything that we are toward you, Father, and to be revolutionized by, by Amos' words. Father, thank you for this text. We pray that we pray that we are good stewards of it. Bless us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, having the last word is kind of a tricky thing. I remember a couple of weeks ago, my mother was here for a visit, and uh, uh, right before she left to go back to Fredericksburg, uh, she said, uh, Son, I want you to know that you know I had such a wonderful time at Mac. What, what great singing, what great people. Your, your message was okay. <laughs> and and uh, but I I need to tell you something, uh, and and at this point I'm going is this a, what's happening here? And she goes when you walk up those steps you need to figure out a different way to go because people can see you're balding, the back of your head. And I thought absolutely I'm going to have the last word right here and I said, yes ma'am. <laughs> Back in college, I had uh, Royce Money for a, a psychology class. And I think I told you this story before. I was taking a final exam, and uh, it, it was a psychology class for preachers, uh, uh, not for us in the sense that we needed it, but to figure out what psychology was all about. And the, one of the questions, we, we were studying all of these different great personalities of the, the psychotherapeutic world, and I'd studied and studied and studied and studied and had this stuff down cold. And I, I get to the test, and there's a, a 20 point out of 100 points. There's a 20 point question that says, Tell me everything you know about Virginia Satir and the Palo Alto School of, of Psychology. In that moment, I went blank. And I wrote on, the, uh, on my test, I said, uh, Dr. Money, I can guarantee you that I studied and I know this, but I have gone blank. Let me tell you everything I know about Sigmund Freud. And I just wrote and 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 wrote. And I get the test back and it says, I give you half credit for gall and genius. And so that one kind of ended up pretty well. There's a story that's told of a guy that did the same type of deal. It was the final exam right before Christmas. And he, he turns the exam, and it's basically blank. He turns it into his professor and says, God only knows the answer to this test. Merry Christmas. Well, he gets the test back in the mail, and the professor has the last word, and he says, God gets an A, you get an F, Happy New Year. <laughs> you know, sometimes it is fun to have the last word. In Amos, the book of Amos, in essence, is Amos trying, the prophet trying to get Israel to understand that God is ready to write the last chapter on Israel. And one of the things that we always need to remember, church, is that God always has the last word. The last word always belongs to God. And in this case, it's a song. 
It's eight stanzas, and each of it begins with the words in Hebrew, Ko Amar Adonai, Thus saith the Lord, and then it continues for three sins, insert the name of a nation, and for four, and then he, he, he lines out what the sins of that nation is. Now, here's what it looks like. In Amos chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. And then in verse 6, the same formula. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will, not, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. Verse 9, Ko Amar Adonai, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives uh, to Edom, disregarding the treaty of brotherhood. And then verse 11, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with the sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. Verses 13 and 14. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah, that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. And then we go to chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. And then Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and this will be the last one that we'll read in the series, in a series, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the God their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now, you, you get a, a, a feel for what that song sounds like. It's just the same. It's like row, row, row your boat, Right? Now, it's important to remember that this song is being sung by Amos to Israel, even though it includes all of the other nations like the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines and the Syrians and so on and so forth. It's being sung to Israel, to north Israel, to those ten tribes in the north. Now, this, there's a reason for that. This morning I talked about how we're really good at attacking other sinners. We're attacking other people for their sin, but we're not really good at attacking personal sin our own sin, dealing with what's going on in our own soul and in our own life. If you'll remember, over in 2 Samuel, that's what Nathan had to do to, to, uh, to, to David. Remember, David has committed this incredibly heinous sin against God with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and all of that. And, and David is just trucking along. He thinks everything is taken care of. And Nathan shows up one day and tells him this, this sob story, this soap opera about this one guy that had million sheep, another guy that had one sheep, and it was like a daughter to him. He just loved this sheep. And this rich man with a million sheep had this guy come and visit him. And he didn't want to feed him one of his own sheep, so he takes the sheep of the one guy. The, 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 the guy that has the one sheep that, that he loves like a daughter. And David is just, because David has integrity when it comes to sheep, David is just furious. And he says, that guy, and he just 
blurts out this punishment. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the guy. And that gets David's attention. And really everything from that point on just kind of caves in on David. Paul, in a manner of speaking, does the same thing at the very beginning of Romans. He says, you know, you know the, the, the gospel is the power of God to save people in verse 16. But the wrath of God is being poured out and he begins to talk about Gentiles and, and pagans who, who reject God, the, the presence of God. And then from there he moves to those Gentiles that are kind of moralistic that, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, I, I do good things, I'm better than Joe Schmo from Kokomo down the street, so I'm a pretty good guy. And Paul says, no, just like the atheist, that person is lost as well because they can't even do what it is on their hearts, what the law of, of, of their heart says is the right thing to do. And just about the time his Jewish audience begins to say, you know what, that's right, that's right, that's right, he turns to the Jewish audience and says, and how about you that have the direct commandments of God, the direct revelation of God? You who say don't steal, why do you steal? And he gets their attention. Now Amos is concerned with Israel getting this message. He is so concerned that he, 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 he formulates, he, he develops this song of sin. It's, it's just a little ditty. It's, it's very catchy. It just starts off. It's the same thing over and over and over again. It's like row, row, row your boat. Only it's a song of sin. And all of Israel is catching on to this. They hear it on the radio. They hear it around the campfire. They hear it at the house. Everybody's humming it. Everybody starts singing this. It's a big time hit in North Israel because this is a song about God's judgment on all of these nations around North Israel that they have despised for years and have been a thorn in their own flesh. And they like this song and it's easy to sing. It's easy to remember. And they get to singing and singing and singing. And he starts with, with Syria. And all of those people from Damascus, and then he goes to the Gaza Strip and talks about Philistia, and then he goes a little north of that and goes to Tyre and then down to the south with Edom and the Ammonites and Moab, and then he gets all the way around to south Judah. Now, north Israel has been a little suspicious about Amos because he's from south Judah. He's from the two tribes in the south. Why in the world would we listen to you with this message that you say is from God? And that's why Amos gets him singing this song. And then when they get to that stanza that deals with Judah, they really like Amos because he sounds like their kind of guy. Even though he's from South Judah, he has the right perspective on all those people living around Jerusalem. This is a song about God judging everyone. Now notice what Amos is doing. As he gets them singing the song, and they're all singing and clapping, and they're loving it, he's getting them on board with a couple of facts. As they sing, they are recognizing and saying, yes, 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 and clapping to the fact that God hates sin in any form. But God hates it. And then number two, they are just all behind him talking about the judgment of, of God on all of these nations. That the, Yes, there is this standard by which everyone is held, and Israel is in agreement. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, the, 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 what, what Amos is saying about Ammon and Moab and Philistia and, and, and Damascus, that's all true. God will judge everybody. There is a standard. And all of their sins will be found out and God will judge them. And they said, yes, and Judah's even worse out of all of them because they do have the direct, firm word of God delivered to them and they have transgressed against it. And then the last part of this that he's gotten them on board with is the fact that God will judge sin. He will. And all of, these, all of these nations that they're singing about, they are all going to be hammered by God. And North Israel is down with that song. Everyone likes where Amos is going, but the reality is this. 
Amos is tightening the noose around Israel's neck. The last stanza of the song is about Israel, and it goes like this. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son, get this, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lay down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites. Now we talked about that this morning, right? I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes with lo when loaded with, with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Now, where Amos says that the nations are guilty for not treating others as they would want to be treated, he also says Israel is guilty of not treating others as they have been treated by God. Instead, the righteous can't get out of debt. They trample the poor into the ground. There is this, this, this gross sexual abuse of women. Uh, by, uh, you know, they, they're used by the same father and son. Rich keeping garments taken in pledge, which is a, a direct violation of Torah. There are civil judges that were guilty of taking bribes. The religious are being corrupted and being made to profane the name of God. Now, in essence, what they have done is they have despised the grace that God has shown them. Do you remember that parable of the unjust steward in Matthew chapter 18? There is this guy that owns his that owes his master. 10,000 bags of gold. There's no way he's ever going to be able to pay it back. And he goes to his master and says, hey, I need to be forgiven of this. The master's not going to do it. He wants to throw him in jail. That's what you did back then. You throw him in jail because of the enormous debt that was owed. But the servant begs for mercy. And the king, the, the master relents and he says, you know what? I dismiss it. It is completely gone. You may go. He gets outside the door. He's thinking about how fortunate he is, how great it is to be a free man when he runs into a fellow servant who owes him the price of a Starbucks coffee. And he grabs that guy and he says, where's the money you owe me, the $5 that you owe me for that cup of coffee? And the guy says, I don't have it. And he becomes so angry that he wants to throw this guy in jail because he owes him $5 even after he has been forgiven 10,000 bags of gold. And everybody around that sees what is happening is just outraged. They go to the king, they go to the master, and they say, do you know what your servant has done? And the king becomes angry, and he pulls that servant in. He says, you know, I showed you grace. I showed you grace. And then he says in verse 33, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then he delivers him to the jailers in order to be tortured and to thrown in jail. Now, friends, God will always have the last word. God will always have the last word. Israel 
said times had never been better. This is one of the reasons why they can't hear it. It's because the military is strong, the borders are expanding, the economy is better than ever. You know, there are, there are riches to be had. Everything is great. It's a time of peace. All of the enemies look like they are on the decline. But here's the truth. God sees what we refuse to see. God sees what we refuse to see. Now, a couple of lessons from this. The first is the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. There are several declarations that are made in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that are made in this text that give us insight into the nature and the character of God. The first is God knows what is happening in the world. Nothing escapes His eyes, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It doesn't matter if that nation recognizes it or not. The God who is sovereign of the universe is not a tribal God, but the Creator of the universe. In Amos, God is not referred to as the God of Israel, but as the God of the whole world. And that is part of God's sovereignty, that God knows what is happening in His creation. He is not, as the deists believe, created the world, put the, the, the laws of creation in order, flipped the switch, turned it on, set it loose, and then He went to go do something else. Now what Amos is telling us is that, guy, that God's eyes are focused on the planet, on the creation. And because He sees everything that goes on, the future of the nations depend on God. Now, historians don't always like this. Historians like to believe that everything happens because there is some human reason behind it, as in the Assyrians finally got their act together. And after they got their act together, they saw Israel as a prize plum, and so the Assyrians decided to attack Israel, and, and as they were becoming this ascending world power, Israel was just this cog in the big Assyrian machine. What Amos says is that 40 years before the Assyrians came, God was saying, God was trying to have the last word with Israel and to say, you need to repent, you need to repent, you need to repent. And if you believe, as you've been singing with Amos, that all of these other nations are going to be held to a standard and you recognize that their sin and that that sin is against my holy nature and that that sin will be judged by me, then you have to repent of the sin that is rampant and pervasive and all-encompassing in your own society. And then not only is the Lord sovereign, but the Lord is patient. For three sins and for four is one way of saying the time has come. For three sins and for four is another way of saying there is this large amount of sin that is, that is happening in all of these nations. For three sins and for four, it's like saying, you know, enough is enough. But also implied in that is the, the, the tremendous, majestic patience on the part of God. And as a sub-point, you know, God does not rush to judgment, but judgment does come. God does not rush to judgment, but judgment comes. Israel had four, they had another 40 years more or less to get their act together. And they, they recognized that there was all of this judgment that was going to take place on all of these other nations, but they refused to believe because of what they were seeing with their eyes. They did not see themselves as God sees them, but because they saw the judgment happening all around them and everything was ascending in their own nation, they just they felt like they could ignore it. They felt like they could ignore it. And then in 721 B.C., those Assyrians come down and they just they ravaged the land. 
And the city of Samaria, which is the capital of those ten tribes after the splitting of the, of, of the, the twelve tribes back during Jeroboam the first and Rehoboam the son of Solomon, after those two tribes or those, those, uh, those two uh, the sets of tribes split, Samaria became the capital of those ten northern tribes. The Assyrians tear it down. They just ravaged the land. They just raised the area. Scorched earth policy. And those ten tribes are carried off into captivity, never to be seen or heard from ever again. I mean, the oblivion that they were taken into was complete. And then those prophets of God begin to turn their voices to South Judah and those two remaining tribes and to say exactly the same thing. And South Judah had 150 years more or less before the Babylonians, who are now the power, come down and after a couple of sieges of Jerusalem to try to teach them a lesson, the Babylonians come down in 486 B.C. and they completely dismantle Jerusalem. God does not rush to judgment, but judgment does come. And God's patience comes to an end. There is in, in Yahweh, there is in God our Father a perfect blend of patience and justice and judgment and love and holiness and concern and a desire for repentance and a desire for relationship but in abhorrence of, and, and a complete intolerance of sin. And in the fullness of time, there is judgment. And this is God being true to His moral standard, which is an appeal to repentance on the part of man. What God is doing through Amos is He, 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 is, he is not coming and trying to just draw this line in the sand and say, choose. He's not just trying to use ration and trying to use his intellect to try to make an argument the way that Clarence Darrow or Ironside would make an argument in a court of law saying, here are the facts, guilty or not guilty. That's not what he's doing because sometimes you need a little bit of emotion to get people moving as well. And so what he's saying, he gets them singing and they get so emotionally caught up in the song and they're agreeing with everything that Amos has to say, and then all of a sudden the hammer strikes on the anvil, and it's them that is on that anvil, and the, and the hammer hits hard, and it, they are just as guilty, if not more so, than every other nation. You'll notice that God, when He is indicting all of these other nations outside of Judah, He never indicts them for what they have done to Israel, uh, and He only indicts them for what they have done in terms of oppression. Meaning that even though they didn't have the direct revelation of God's Word, they were still guilty because even in their heart, which Paul refers to in Romans 2, they are guilty of, of even what their heart believes to be true. I mean, nobody wants somebody to come into their village and to take their women and children into slavery and to wipe out all of their men and to burn the crops and to kill the animals. Nobody wants that. So why are you going to do that to somebody else's village? God's saying they're guilty of that kind of oppression, of burning that king's bones to the point that there's nothing left but the lion and ripping over, uh, open pregnant women in order to expand their boundaries. And Israel's getting so up in arms as they sing, and they're so excited that, yes, God's going to do this, God's going to do this. And then all of a sudden, everything focuses on them. And they are guilty of, of, of tearing Torah to shreds, of, of practicing things that are explicit and easy to understand, not just some of the, these these these... these you know, mysterious points. But sexual immorality and corrupting religious youth and, and worship 
becoming a place that God doesn't even want to hear their prayers anymore. He would rather them be silent. And the way that they have pressed and pushed the poor down in order to keep them in the dust so that they can grow richer and richer and richer. The borders of their bank account can expand and expand and expand. And everybody's guilty. Everybody is guilty. Everybody deserves the punishment. What Amos is doing, though, is trying to get them through the power of emotion and the power of logic to realize that time is short. Time is short. You know, I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon that somebody responded to that was just pure intellect. I've always thought, always believed that there were a lot of things that were happening in people's lives that brought them to this place where they decided to give their lives to God or to repent of a, of a, of a, of a, of a setting sin in their life. There were the songs that we sang. You know, we were talking just a few minutes ago about Jeff's leading this morning. I mean, we were singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy are You, Lord. We're standing on holy ground because God is here. Being reminded of the greatness of God, the majesty, His loftiness, His holiness. And then the Scripture readings and, and Steve talking about the directives that God gives us and, and being reminded of, of, of the, the greatness of God's cross that Jesus died upon so that our sins could be forgiven. And then this morning, talking about AI and the sin and how our, our communities of faith will not flourish, our churches will not flourish because we as an individual will not flourish as long as we're comfortable with sin. And then on top of that, you got the Holy Spirit. And not just the good stories and not just the good words, but you've got God's Word working on a person's heart. And that's all Amos is trying to do which says a lot about the love of God for people. He wants His people to repent. He wants His people to repent. And Amos is just brave enough to sing a song about it that could turn on him, but he's willing to do it because he's seen that greatness of God's grace for himself. You know, one of the things that Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11 is this says you need to consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and, and perhaps today the Spirit and the Word and the worship and the preaching and the communion and the prayers and the fellowship and the interaction have all synergistically worked to help you come into the presence of God in such a way that you are convicted of the sin of your heart. And more than anything else, you want to come out from under that pressure that is like a great trailer of grain on your heart weighing you down. As Jeff leads us in this next song, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them. There's no reason to. Repentance and confession are easy after you make the first step. But the way that you are alleviated of that, that pain and of that guilt and the, 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 the conscience that is smudged and the cleanness that comes to your heart and the ability to sleep at night because that guilt is gone is a wondrous, wondrous thing. The Bible promises, 1 John chapter 1, that if you, if you say you don't have sin, you make God out to be a liar. The truth is not in you. You're deceived about yourself. But if you confess, God's the faithful one 
and He will restore to you that righteousness, which is the greatest gift you could ever receive. Or maybe you've never, ever, ever come to grips with the fact that you're lost. Maybe you've never known anything about God's Word. I'm telling you tonight that you're still guilty, you're still condemned, because even the loss that you have in your own heart, the conscience that you have, the knowledge that you want to be treated, uh, you need to treat others the way that you would want them to treat you, you have violated that over and over again, and you stand condemned and judged. But you can't come out of that because that judgment fell on somebody else. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And He took the judgment of God on the cross, taking your sin upon Him so that you don't have to face that judgment. And if that describes you tonight, these shepherds, our spiritual leaders, are going to be down here at the front during the singing of the song as we're all standing and praising God. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. Let's do it now. Let's stand and sing. Every mountain stream, every sunset sky, but my one...